Section 12 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Italy Revisited, Part 2. 3. On leaving Genoa, I repaired to Spezia, chiefly with the view of accomplishing a sentimental pilgrimage, which I, in fact, achieved in the most agreeable conditions. The Gulf of Spezia is now the headquarters of the Italian fleet, and there were several big iron-plated frigates riding at anchor in front of the town. The streets were filled with lads in blue flannel who were receiving instruction at a school ship in the harbour, and in the evening, there was a brilliant moon, the little breakwater which stretched out into the Mediterranean offered a scene of recreation to innumerable such persons. But this fact is, from the point of view of the cherisher of quaintness, of little account. For since it has become prosperous, Spezia has grown ugly. The place is filled with long, dull stretches of dead wall and great raw expanses of artificial land. It wears that look of monstrous, of more than far western newness, which distinguishes all the creations of the young Italian state. Nor did I find any great compensation in an immense inn of recent birth, an establishment seated on the edge of the sea in anticipation of a passeggiata, which is to come that way some five years hence, the region being in the meantime of the most primitive formation. The inn was filled with grave English people who looked respectable and bored. And there was, of course, a Church of England service in the gaudily frescoed parlour. Neither was it the drive to Porto Venere that chiefly pleased me. A drive among vines and olives over the hills and beside the Mediterranean to a queer little crumbling village on a headland, as sweetly desolate and superannuated as the name it bears. There's a ruined church near the village, which occupies the site, according to tradition, of an ancient temple of Venus. And if Venus ever revisits her desecrated shrines, she must sometimes pause a moment in that sunny stillness and listen to the murmur of the tideless sea at the base of the narrow promontory. If Venus sometimes comes there, Apollo surely does as much, for close to the temple is a gateway, surmounted by an inscription in Italian and English, which admits you to a curious and it must be confessed rather cocknified, cave among the rocks. It was here, says the inscription, that the great Byron, swimmer and poet, quote, defied the waves of the Ligurian Sea, unquote. The fact is interesting, though not supremely so, for Byron was always defying something, and if a slab had been put up wherever this performance came off, these commemorative tablets would be in many parts of Europe as thick as milestones. No, the great merit of Spezia to my eye is that I engaged a boat there of a lovely October afternoon and had myself rowed across the gulf. It took about an hour and a half to the little bay of Lerici, which opens out of it. This bay of Lerici is charming. The bosky grey-green hills close it in, and on either side of the entrance, 
perched on a bold headland, a wonderful old crumbling castle keeps ineffectual guard. The place is classic to all English travellers, for in the middle of the curving shore is the now desolate little villa in which Shelley spent the last months of his short life. He was living at Lerici when he started on that short southern cruise from which he never returned. The house he occupied is strangely shabby, and as sad as you may choose to find it. It stands directly upon the beach, with scarred and battered walls and a lodger of several arches opening to a little terrace with a rugged parapet, which, when the wind blows, must be drenched with the salt spray. The place is very lonely, all over-wearied with sun and breeze and brine, very close to nature, as it was Shelley's passion to be. I can fancy a great lyric poet sitting on the terrace of a warm evening and feeling very far from England in the early years of the century. In that place, and with his genius, he would, as a matter of course, have heard in the voice of nature a sweetness which only the lyric movement could translate. It is a place where an English-speaking pilgrim himself may very honestly think thoughts and feel moved to lyric utterance, but I must content myself with saying in halting prose that I remember few episodes of Italian travel more sympathetic, as they have it here, than that perfect autumn afternoon. The half-hour's station on the little battered terrace of the villa, the climb to the singularly felicitous old castle that hangs above Lerici, the meditative lounge in the fading light on the vine-decked platform that looked out toward the sunset and the darkening mountains and, far below, upon the quiet sea, beyond which the pale-faced tragic villas stared up at the brightening moon. 4. I had never known Florence more herself, or in other words, more attaching than I found her for a week in that brilliant October. She sat in the sunshine beside her yellow river like the little treasure city she has always seemed, without commerce, without other industry than the manufacture of mosaic paperweights and alabaster cupids, without actuality or energy or earnestness or any of those rugged virtues which in most cases are deemed indispensable for civic cohesion. With nothing but the little unaugmented stock of her medieval memories, her tender-coloured mountains, her churches and palaces, pictures and statues. There were very few strangers. One's detested fellow-pilgrim was infrequent. The native population itself seemed scanty. The sound of wheels in the streets was but occasional. By eight o'clock at night, apparently everyone had gone to bed, and the musing wanderer, still wandering and still musing, had the place to himself. Had the thick shadow masses of the great palaces and the shafts of moonlight striking the polygonal paving stones, and the empty bridges, and the silvered yellow of the Arno, and the stillness, broken only by a homeward step, a step accompanied by a snatch of song from a warm Italian voice. 
My room at the inn looked out on the river and was flooded all day with sunshine. There was an absurd orange-coloured paper on the walls. The Arno, of a hue not altogether different, flowed beneath, and on the other side of it rose a line of sallow houses of extreme antiquity, crumbling and mouldering, bulging and protruding over the stream. I seemed to speak of their fronts, but what I saw was their shabby backs, which were exposed to the cheerful flicker of the river, while the fronts stood forever in the deep, damp shadow of a narrow medieval street. All this brightness and yellowness was a perpetual delight. It was a part of that indefinably charming colour which Florence always seems to wear as you look up and down at it from the river, and from the bridges and quays. This is a kind of grave radiance, a harmony of high tints which I scarce know how to describe. There are yellow walls and green blinds and red roofs. There are intervals of brilliant brown and natural-looking blue, but the picture is not spotty nor gaudy, thanks to the distribution of the colours in large and comfortable masses, and to the washing over of the scene by some happy softness of sunshine. The river front of Florence is, in short, a delightful composition. Part of its charm comes, of course, from the generous aspect of those high-based Tuscan palaces, which a renewal of acquaintance with them has again commended to me as the most dignified dwellings in the world. Nothing can be finer than that look of giving up the whole immense ground floor to simple purposes of vestibule and staircase, of court and high-arched entrance, as if this were all but a massive pedestal for the real habitation, and people weren't properly housed unless, to begin with, they should be lifted fifty feet above the pavement. The great blocks of the basement, the great intervals, horizontally and vertically from window to window, telling of the height and breadth of the rooms within, the armorial shield hung forward at one of the angles, the wide-brimmed roof overshadowing the narrow street, the rich old browns and yellows of the walls. These definite elements put themselves together with admirable art. Take a Tuscan pile of this type out of its oblique situation in the town, call it no longer a palace but a villa, set it down by a terrace on one of the hills that encircle Florence, place a row of high-waisted cypresses beside it, give it a grassy courtyard and a view of the Florentine towers and the valley of the Arno, and you will think it perhaps even more worthy of your esteem. It was a Sunday noon and brilliantly warm when I again arrived, and after I had looked from my windows a while at that quietly basking river front I have spoken of, I took my way across one of the bridges and then out of one of the gates, that immensely tall Roman gate in which the space from the top of the arch to the cornice, except that there is scarcely a cornice, it is all a plain, massive piece of wall, is as great, or seems to be, as that from the ground to the former point. Then I climbed a steep and winding way, much of it a little dull if one likes, being bounded by mottled, mossy garden walls, to a villa on a hilltop, 
where I found various things that touched me with almost too fine a point. Seeing them again, often for a week, both by sunlight and moonshine, I never quite learned not to covet them, not to feel that not being a part of them was somehow to miss an exquisite chance. What a tranquil, contented life it seemed, with romantic beauty as part of its daily texture, the sunny terrace with its tangled pottery beneath it, the bright grey olives against the bright blue sky, the long, serene, horizontal lines of other villas, flanked by their upward cypresses disposed upon the neighbouring hills, the richest little city in the world in a softly scooped hollow at one's feet, and beyond it the most appealing of views, the most majestic, yet the most familiar. Within the villa was a great love of art, and painting-room full of felicitous work, so that if human life there confessed to quietness, the quietness was mostly but that of the intent act. Beautiful occupation in that beautiful position. What could possibly be better? That is what I spoke just now of envying, a way of life that doesn't wince at such refinements of peace and ease. When labour, self-charmed, presents itself in a dull or ugly place, we esteem it, we admire it, but we scarce feel it to be the ideal of good fortune. When, however, its votaries move as figures in an ancient noble landscape, and their walks and contemplations are like a turning of the leaves of history, we seem to have before us an admirable case of virtue made easy, meaning here by virtue contentment and concentration, a real appreciation of the rare, the exquisite though composite medium of life. You needn't want a rush or a crush when the scene itself, the mere scene, shares with you such a wealth of consciousness. It is true indeed that I might after a certain time grow weary of a regular afternoon stroll among the Florentine lanes, of sitting on low parapets in intervals of flower-topped wall and looking across at Fiesole or down the rich-hued valley of the Arno, of pausing at the open gates of villas and wandering at the height of cypresses and the depth of loggias, of walking home in the fading light and noting on a dozen westward-looking surfaces the glow of the opposite sunset, but for a week or so, all this was delightful. The villas are innumerable. And if you're an aching alien, half the talk is about villas. This one has a story, that one has another. They all look as though they had stories, none in truth predominantly gay. Most of them are offered to rent, many of them for sale at prices unnaturally low. You may have a tower and a garden, a chapel and an expanse of 30 windows for $500 a year. In imagination, you hire three or four. You take possession and settle and stay. Your sense of the fineness of the finest is something very grave and stately. Your sense of the bravery of two or three of the best something quite tragic and sinister. From what does this latter impression come? 
You gather it as you stand there in the early dusk, with your eyes on the long, pale brown facade, the enormous windows, the iron cages fastened to the lower ones. Part of the brooding expression of these great houses comes, even when they have not fallen into decay, from their look of having outlived their original use. Their extraordinary largeness and massiveness are a satire on their present fate. They weren't built with such a thickness of wall and depth of embrasure, such a solidity of staircase and superfluity of stone, simply to afford an economical winter residence to English and American families. I don't know whether it was the appearance of these stony old villas which seemed so dumbly conscious of a change of manners that threw a tinge of melancholy over the general prospect. Certain it is that having always found this note as of a myriad old sadnesses and solution in the view of Florence, it seemed to me now particularly strong. Lovely, lovely, but it makes me blue. The sensitive stranger couldn't but murmur to himself, as in the late afternoon he looked at the landscape from over one of the low parapets, and then, with his hands in his pockets, turned away indoors to candles and dinner. End of section 12